welcome you to Bible class this morning and welcome our KFU listening audience as we continue with our study of the Gospel of Luke. Now, I'm here today because all the other pastors are gone. <laughs> Pastor Thompson, Thomas is here. He's doing all the services. And Pastor Thompson, our new pastor, before he took the, uh, uh, accepted his call, he had promised a bunch of the kids at the seminary that he would take them to the youth gathering. So he took them. Pastor Wade's with our kids. Two or three other pastors that are members of the church are also down there. So you get me. You get me. When they got to the bottom of the list, he asked me. So, we're at Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 51, and this is a very important verse. Uh, this verse is considered the transition verse for all of the Gospel of Luke. So, let's look at this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, it, it's better to, to say when the days were fulfilled for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. When they were fulfilled. We see that word over and over again. Uh, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, it's a word that marks that God's plan of salvation is moving forward. That it's going to be fulfilled. And of course, it is Jesus Christ who is going to do it. Now, notice when it says, when the days were fulfilled for him to be taken up. Just before this verse... Also in chapter 9, is Jesus' transfiguration, okay? And during uh, that account, it talks about Jesus' departure. And it's a very interesting word there. It's exodus. His Exodus. So when we put that in the total context, the children of Israel left Egypt on their way to the Promised Land. But all along the way to the Promised Land, they were constantly tempted and constantly fell away from God. They grumbled against God. They didn't like the food. Uh, God sent snakes among them. All these things, they kept falling away in unbelief from God all the way through the wilderness. When we use, when Luke uses that word exodus, 
he's calling us to look at Jesus' ministry like compared to Israel. Israel failed miserably. Jesus is now the suffering servant. He's going to fulfill his father's plan. All along the way from this point, his whole ministry, to the cross, he's going to be tempted to abandon the road to the cross. Even people like Peter said, no. And he's going to be, he's going to meet significant opposition against him in his ministry. So the children of Israel failed in their trip to the promised land. Jesus' exodus to the cross is different. He's going to overcome all temptation. He's going to overcome all opposition. And he's going to fulfill his mission. And that's why the word fulfillment is a better word here. Now that, the transfiguration talked about the exodus. Now we're talking about him being lifted up. Two different words. The word exodus emphasizes his humiliation his being delivered up emphasizes his exaltation, his resurrection and his ascension. So two different emphases. Now, but then the last part, when the days were fulfilled for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I want to look for a moment at a passage in the prophet Isaiah. If you'll look at Isaiah chapter 50, verses 6 and 7, we will see here that what, when Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, that was actually prophesied in Isaiah. It was prophesied, um, and we'll see here, the prophecy of his passion. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. 
Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Set my face like flint. He will not be deterred. He will not be tempted and fall into that temptation and abandon the cross. He will not give in to the opposition against him. He sets his face like a rock to go to Jerusalem. Because that is his mission. His mission is to save us. To save us. And nothing will deter him. And the rest of Luke is centered around that passage. Him doing just that. Now don't get upset. We've talked about this before, that this is suddenly in verse 51. It, it ought to be the first of a chapter. Well, we've talked about this before. The guy that put the chapters and verses in didn't know what he's doing. And the old story is he was riding in a buggy, and every time they hit a bump, he put a number in. So there are no numbers in the Greek and Hebrew text. There are no verses and chapters. So this doesn't mean that uh, just because it's verse 51, it's still of critical importance. So, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He's come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. The days are drawing near, and he sets his face to fulfill the mission that his father sent him to. Now, 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Okay, he was north, he had to get to Jerusalem. Some Jews would not travel through Samaria. Samaria was populated by Samaritans, and Samaritans were people who the Jews considered unclean. Centuries before, these people had remained in the land when Assyria conquered Israel. They had stayed in the land and they had intermarried with the Assyrians and not with fellow Jews. They also believed that it was not necessary to worship in Jerusalem. They would worship at Mount Gerizim, which was closer. Jews would not have anything to do with Samaritans. Sometimes they wouldn't even travel through their land to get through to Jerusalem. They would go all the way on the other side of the Jordan and go down to avoid the Samaritans. But Jesus is going through Samaria. Now, why did they go to make preparation? 
as we're going to see, Jesus at this point is traveling with a huge entourage. It's not just the twelve, but we'll get there. Now, verse 53 is interesting. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, that, that passage has been debated a lot. Is it something they saw in his countenance that they knew he could not be stopped? We don't think so. We believe that this is part of that Jewish Samaritan problem. Jesus was going to Jerusalem. Samaritans did not like Jews traveling through their land to go to Jerusalem to worship because it was kind of in your face. So it's out there somewhere. Evidently, they were not ready to accept him because he was a Jew and he was traveling through their land. And at the same time, maybe there was something in his countenance that he simply could not be stopped, could not be slowed down. And then verse 54, you can always count on the disciples to do the wrong thing. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. All right. Jesus rebuked them. Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem for the specific reason of dying on the cross to save all mankind. The fire of God's wrath will ultimately come when Jesus comes again. The fire of God's wrath is going to fall on Jesus at the cross of Calvary for all of our sins, all of them. Jesus is not going to let John and James call down the fire of God and consume these people before he saves them. So that that gospel message can go forth. The fire of God's going to come soon enough. They do not have the mind of Christ yet. They don't have it. thinking on judgment when they need to be thinking on salvation. What can we do to save these people, not what can we do to judge these people? So that's why he rebukes them. 
and that's why they go on. And then we have an interesting section here um, of three examples. And it says the cost of following Jesus. These examples are a good way to look at what it means when Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And how that in many ways applies to us. 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Example number one. Jesus is homeless. The best way to put it. Jesus is homeless. He's not going to go through all these villages and look for the best place to stay. He has set his face to go to Jerusalem and he will be homeless because nothing will deter him from reaching that goal. Jesus Christ is willing to be homeless to meet the goal. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. All commitments are off, including family. Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God comes before family. Your faith in Christ comes before family. It's the first thing. It's the priority. And even in this case, though it sounds very righteous, Jesus is saying the mission to the cross and the gospel is more important than any earthly thing, including family. Any earthly thing. He will not be deterred. A third example. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, the home. Greetings were very important among the Jews, especially to family. But Jesus is saying, don't look back. If you are plowing and you're looking forward to make a straight furrow, 
and you look back, you'll go like this. You have to keep looking forward. Jesus would look only at his mission and nothing else, and we are called to look forward in faith. The past is forgiven for us. We look forward in the faith. So these three examples seem to set a, describe a little more further what it means that he has set his face to go to Jerusalem. Okay, now let me stop there because that kind of ends that section based on verse 51. See if you have any questions or comments. None? Yeah. Yes. Well, he's basically telling him, you're going to be homeless like me. It's a warning. This is the kind of life you're going to have to lead. This is the kind of life you're going to have to lead. Yeah, bud, you have one. Well, I, that part above the village seems like an odd little addition. Probably is more important than it is important. Yeah, and what it's saying is that section where James and John are rebuked not only emphasizes what Jesus is about to save them, but it's also saying, I'm going to die for not just the Jews, but for the Samaritans. That's a bold statement for him to make. Jews would not like that statement, okay? They didn't think the Samaritans were worth it. So it's holding up that he's going to die for all people, all people. Okay, chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. This is the thing that tells us that Jesus was traveling with a huge entourage. There were at least 72 others. Now, it's interesting to note that in Luke, it's the 72 are sent. In Matthew, it's only the 12. That's in Matthew chapter 10 also. And if you read Matthew chapter 10, he sends the 12 out and gives them almost exactly the same instructions as he's going to give to the 72. Now, you're... Bibles probably in some way fudge the number 72. It's either 70 or 72. 
and scholars have debated this for years. If we look at all the ancient manuscripts of Luke, the best ones, some say 70, some say 72. Some believe it's 70, going back to Moses in the book of Numbers when he appointed 70 elders. Some say it's 72. We don't know, and it doesn't really make any difference. Okay? They did send them out by two, and there is a reason for that. In Jewish culture, any statement that was made had to be confirmed by two witnesses. So he would not send them out individually, but by two, so that every statement that was made was confirmed by two voices. Notice he sends them into the towns and places that he himself was about to go. They, in other words, were to go and get the people ready for him. Ready for him. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. This immediately makes us think of the parable of the sower. Okay? And he's sending out people to harvest what the word of God has brought, has produced. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. The lamb in imagery is definitely of one who is helpless and dependent on others. The wolves will be the opposition, not to them, but to the message they bring. They will be um, subject to opposition, and it's going to get worse. So he's going to send them out as helpless ones, except for the fact that God will go with them. Now notice what he says. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one in the, on the road. They are to take no provisions whatsoever. Zero, none. They are to go, and they will be relying totally on the Lord to supply for them. Totally. Like lambs. And notice it says, greet no one on the road. That is completely opposite 
of what the Jews would do. The Jews would always greet and talk to any other Jew that they passed. It was a sign of respect and hospitality. Now he's saying, don't do it. Because you are not to be delayed in any way from accomplishing what I tell you. No distractions. No side comments. No side conversations. You're on a mission from me. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. In other words, if the people of that house are willing to receive you and hear your message, then the peace, which is the gift of God, stays upon that house. But if not, it will return to you. Okay? Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the uh, labor deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. All right. There's to be no temptation to use what's happening for your advantage. In other words, there are several people in town that want to take care of you. Well, I'll happily be taken care of by more than one house. None of that. One place. You're to eat what's put before you. You are not to go from house to house. You are not to be looking for more. You're not to be looking for a better deal, better accommodations, better food. No. House you go, they receive you, you stay there. You stay there. Verse 8, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Then notice the mission. Heal the sick in it. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Very interesting, if you study the scriptures... The disciples at this point are not going to teach anything. We don't hear about the disciples teaching until after Pentecost. They didn't know enough to teach anything at this point. Heal the sick. That was a sign. Kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God is Jesus Christ. 
when he ministered to someone, when he taught someone, that was the kingdom of God standing right there. He has come near to you. The kingdom of God is among you. He is among us. When he arrives, he is the kingdom of God. But they were to prepare these people for his arrival by healing the sick, which would get their attention, and proclaiming the kingdom of God has come near to you. That was their goal. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. Okay? And then this next section is quite interesting. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, we're talking here Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? In other words, on the final day of judgment, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for your town. Because you. Nothing happened in Sodom and Gomorrah like the Son of God coming into your midst and healing the sick and speaking to you. But God blessed you with that. And therefore, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. So, what we're dealing with is, is something that's referred to back in, in Matthew. When Jesus begins his ministry, um, the Old Testament is quoted there. Uh, it's an Old Testament passage from Isaiah 9. In the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. In other words, Jesus Christ is the light, and it has dawned. Those people actually saw and witnessed the Christ standing right before them. His miracles, casting out demons, raising the dead, his words. And then it continues. Woe to you, Chorazin, that's a town next to Bethsaida. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, Tyre and Sidon were the were the most evil cities of that day, like Sodom and Gomorrah were in the Old Testament. Tyre and Sidon. What he's saying is, if Tyre and Sidon had seen these kind of miracles, had heard this kind of word, they're so evil, they would have repented. They would have repented and believed. But Jesus did it for you, and you didn't. You didn't. Verse 14, But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now that's a word of judgment, gang. You saw it, you heard it, and you passed. So he ends his instruction with these words. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. In other words, he's sending out 72 as his emissaries to go before him. They are his representatives. When they do what he has told them to do, and what they speak that he has told them to speak, it is as if he himself is speaking. We say that today. When the pastor speaks the word of God, he is his emissary. He is his representative. If you reject you're not rejecting that pastor or that member of the 72 or one of the apostles. You're rejecting Christ. Okay? So that word does apply to us that when the word of God is spoken to us, it is God speaking to us. And if we reject him, we reject If we reject the one speaking to us, we reject Christ. Okay? Then we don't know how long the 72 were out there. Okay? But now we get a report. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. All right, so 
he gave them this power. Satan would indeed fall from heaven. We can read about it in Revelation chapter 12, when he's cast out of heaven for good. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the only true cause of joy. Other things bring us happiness, but it's usually momentary. He doesn't want these men relishing the thought that they have great power because of Jesus. Power corrupts. He wants them to rejoice in the simple fact that their names are written in heaven. That's our true joy that our names are written in heaven. We're no longer like Adam and Eve in this sense. When Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God in shame. We don't have to hide from God anymore. All our sins are forgiven. We don't have to run from him anymore. We can always run to him because we are his forgiven children. We are his. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And through faith in Jesus Christ, our names are written in heaven. That's our cause for rejoicing. That's for all our life. Good times and bad. All right, let me pause there. We've got a few minutes. Yeah, bud? Back up in 9 and 11, it's interesting that he says, he gives instructions to say the same thing. The kingdom of God has come near to you. To the ones that receive him, and then in 11, the ones that reject him. Same words. The same words. It's good news for some, and it's bad. bad news for others. Okay? Yeah, it's good news. The kingdom of God has come near you, and people would receive that with joy. But then those that refuse to listen, it's a word of judgment. It's a word of condemnation. The kingdom of God has come near you, and you reject it. Far from what Jesus wants. But he would still, he, he, he didn't say, okay, I'm not dying for that town. Too bad. He still went and died for them all because he knew they might hear the message again. And this time they might listen. 
and this time he might save them. His ultimate goal is to save, not to judge. Not to judge. And he wants to give everyone every opportunity. Okay? Every opportunity. Anything else? Yeah, Don? Um, they were definitely in Samaria. Uh, but um, who exactly they were, all 72, I don't know. Now, they may have been Galileans. That's where his ministry started. That's where he first ministered. Maybe they came with him from Galilee. Who knows? We know that Jesus did not feel about the Samaritans like um, the Jews did, because look at the woman at the well. Look at uh, our gospel lesson today, the Good Samaritan. So uh, who exactly the 72 were, but they were definitely people that had heard and were following Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now, when he sends out the 12 in Matthew, he says, he does give the instruction, don't go to any Gentile towns. But that would not preclude them going to Samaria. Okay. But at that point, his ministry, he came for the Jews first and then the Gentiles. Anything else? Yeah. That is correct. He's saying to the Jews, if you reject me, you reject the Father who you claim to believe in. But when you reject Christ, you reject the Father. And, of course, they never believed that Jesus was God to begin with. But uh, that's what he's saying. There are implications that go beyond uh, just rejecting him. Okay, I don't know who's teaching next week, but the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.